got a question I want to ask. Uh, is there anyone in the room who is from, you know, born in as in from Missouri or Missouri? Well, there's a, a few, but you're, you're the first hand that went up. And so you know that Missouri has one of the most easily remembered, easier, easy to recall state slogans of all the states. So, so tell us what the state slogan is of Missouri. What is Missouri? Okay, born and raised, someone who's not from Missouri, tell me. The show me state. Now, the next question I was going to ask, I am surely not going to ask you because I've already put you on the spot. But, but do you know why it's called the show me state? Don't pull out your phones and Google it. I'm going to tell you. Um, so there's no definitive answer. That's the first thing to say. We don't know for sure, okay? But it is widely held, and this seems to make sense. It's believed that it comes from a speech from a congressman from Missouri in 1899. It was William Duncan Van Diver. 1899, he's speaking in Philadelphia, and of course they have a record of this speech. And he said this, quote, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You have got to show me. Yeah, end quote. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this Easter Sunday to probably the strangest Easter passage that you've looked at in a while. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, and the reason we're going there is we actually find some first century Missourians, skeptics, who are not going to be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is unless Jesus shows them. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a great Easter passage, as we'll see in a moment, because what Jesus says has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done, in particular on this day that we celebrate. We're in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 38 to 42. I want to give you a bit of a context. You know, up to this point in Matthew, Jesus has healed uh, epileptics, paralytics, the deaf, uh, demon-possessed. He's exercised demons. Jesus has already raised a little girl from the dead, okay? Already done that. Uh, he has cleansed a leper, and he has healed the centurion servant who he didn't even go see simply by saying the word. Now, the, the religious leaders of the day, they have not been oblivious to this. So understand, and Matthew shows this. They've seen these things happen. They were there when some of these things happened. But Matthew makes clear that for the religious leaders of Israel, uh, they've already made up their mind. Okay, they, they, they've made up their mind about Jesus. So when he shows them, he's going to give them what's called an attesting miracle because they say, give us an attesting sign to attest that you are who you say you are. Uh, when they see it, rather than see it and believe, uh, uh, Matthew says they see it and it reinforces their decision 
we must get rid of this man. That, and that's the whole rest of Matthew as they seek to destroy Jesus. So it raises a bit of a question to me. I want you to think about why, uh, why would Jesus even answer their question? If, because Jesus knows their heart, you all. Jesus knows that the religious leaders are, 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 have rejected him. He knows that. And yet he, he answers their question. And we have it recorded. Why, why would he even give them the time of day, so to speak? I want to suggest a few reasons. One is so that we would have a record of it. Okay. Well, why do we need a record of it? Well, because some of us ask the same question today. It's okay. But oftentimes, whether you know Christ, you may not know Christ, and you say, well, he's got to do something to show me he is who he says he is. Got it. Or you may know Christ, and I know I fall in this category, and there are times when I'm struggling and I'm going, Jesus, you need to show me something. Because, do you know what I'm saying? We have trouble believing. And so now we have a record of those who said, Show me. Jesus shows them. And the text looks at us and says, Now, what are you going to do? Whether you know me or whether you don't know me, I've shown you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond? It has a lot to do with you and I today. Follow along in your Bibles, God's word to us today, Matthew 12, 38 to 42. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you, literally an attesting miracle to attest who you are. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, this is the queen of Sheba, Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, when, when my family last spring... Uh, got to take a trip to uh, Europe. My, our son, Darden, 22 now, was studying for his spring semester. I've mentioned the story. He was studying, he spent his spring semester in Spain. And so me and Lisa and our two girls, Sally and Susan, went to Spain. We spent some days in Europe. Un, unbelievable time. So good. But um, we did all the tourist things. And one of the things we did when we were in Paris is we went to the Louvre, you know. And most of you are familiar with the, the Louvre is maybe the most famous museum in the world and you know it's got that pyramid and what I didn't know and what you find is man you go in that little pyramid and then you can go on for days you know this thing just goes everywhere it's amazing but what we did was what almost every tourist does at least you know Americans and others are sure but you get in the line you get in the Louvre and it's loaded with art right but the, but you get there early so you can get in and you can race to see one painting before the crowds build up what one painting are we going to go see yeah, and if you've all been there, you've been a little disappointed, I know, but it's the Mona Lisa. But, but we, of course, did that. And, but what, you, you know, what I thought about is you know, you're racing to see this one painting, and you are running by the masterpieces of the world. You just run straight by them to see this, this one. 
And so we split up our family. You know, this is kind of how we, we, you know, we just kind of, everybody goes their own way because everybody wants to see their own thing. So we split up, and I'm on my own, and everyone's wandering around. And what I did was I would go, and I would, I would see a group at a painting who had a guide, and I would just kind of sneak in, right? I know this is not right, I'm, but I would get, get over there by it because the guide, I mean, you look at a painting and you walk by, but the guide would tell you what's in front of you. Do you see how he used this brush? Do you understand the perspective? You know, and just, it just absolutely blows you away when you see it. What I want to do for the next 15 or 20 minutes is I would like to be, uh, I'd like to place, take the place of that guide. And I want to guide you in this particular text and help you see the sign of Jonah. Now, let me ask you, how many of you, and I'm serious in this, how many of us know the story of Jonah? I mean, every, I mean we all, you know, I mean, we're, we, we know the story of Jonah. But Jesus, of all the stories he could pick to say, here's a sign for you, he picks this one. Have we ever understood that Jonah is the sign he's going to pick? I mean, you can understand the freight that's in that. And so we want to look at it, and we want to look really closely. And the first thing I would say to you is the sign of Jonah is not the whole story. So, you know, you could tell me the whole story, and I'd say, well, do you understand the sign of Jonah? And, I, and if you say, well, it's the, he, he got swallowed by fish. and da-da. Well, it's not the whole story. He says very clearly here, it's the time he spent in the belly of the sea. That's the sign of Jonah. The time he spent under the water. That's the sign of Jonah. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. There's the sign of Jonah. Now, to understand that, what we've got to do is we've got to understand how a Hebrew person, how a Jew in that day and in in, in this day that Jesus is speaking, how they viewed the sea. This is what unlocks the sign of Jonah. How does a Hebrew, a Jewish, Jewish, Jewish person understand and feel about the sea? Let me ask you another question. You know, I know some of you were at the beach this week, you know. Some of you scrambled back to get back for, for, uh, for Easter or whatnot. But, you know, how many of you are, and I'm going to raise my hand. I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag because I'm this person. How many others of you are perfectly content? to go in the water, to get about right here, let the waves hit you and enjoy it, you know, and then go back and sit. But, you know, you're not one of those who's going to go 500 yards out on the boogie board. How many of us are just, in, we're happy to be right? You, yeah, there we go. You're just, I, oh, no, you're just happy to be there because we look at those of you who go out on the boogie board and you're laying on the boogie board and you're kicking your feet and we've watched enough nature shows to know that what that looks like to the shark is what? It looks like a wounded seal. I mean, it literally does, that shadow, you know. And so we're going, you are idiots, you know, to swim out there. I'm terrified of going out there. And it's not just the sharks, it's everything else that I don't want touching me, you know, in the, in the water. For, for the typical Hebrew The sea is not a place to frolic and play. It is a place to fear. 
and avoid. It's dangerous. Now, three great events help us understand why that is and why that would be. You're going to know these, but I'm telling you, when we, it's, it's like when you, when you begin to put redemptive history together and the events that happen, it's like you, you can't read your Bible the same. And I hope that happens to us and many of you today as we go through this. Three great biblical Old Testament events help us understand why in the world are they so afraid of the sea? Why is it so dangerous to them? Let's start in the beginning. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Uh, That's a dark picture. Uh, The Bible begins the creation event with a, think of these words, formless void, darkness, and deep. It's a water ball. It's a chaotic water sphere, so to speak. If I paraphrase it, it would be this. In the beginning, there was water, only water. Uh, There was no light, just water. Uh, There's no sky, just water. There's no land, just water. There's no life. Just what? Just water. It's a watery orb. It's only when God begins to separate, separate light from darkness. It's when God separated that says the waters below from the waters above. You understand that if this is the globe, think of this, and when God separated the waters below, waters but this is what created our what? This is our atmosphere. This is, this is what we look up and we see. This is you walk outside and see a blue sky. That's when God separated the waters above from the waters below. There's no land until God, until God brings the land out of the what? Water. Second great event, the flood. You know, in the creation account, God never said it is good until he had made those separations. He didn't, it didn't say that it was formless and void and it was good. Only after he separated. Second event, the flood. We remember this. So God, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, chose to go their own way. Mankind is, and earth itself is cursed. We're separated from God. And Humanity goes so deep and dark and wicked that God's going to judge humanity. And he judges humanity with a ton of (laughs) just water. And when you read the flood account, we note it sounds like Genesis 1-1. Listen to this. We're only in chapter 6 of Genesis. And we read, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, i.e., the earth once again became a watery orb. It became deep darkness of chaotic water. Creation, flood, and then the last one again, you'll remember this, the Exodus. The Exodus. And there are others, but we're picking the big three. Uh, Third great event. Moses is leading the nation of Israel. They were in bondage to Egypt. 
God sends Moses. Moses leads them out, and he's taking them to the promised land. Now, look on your maps, and you'll understand that when they came out of the dry desert of the promised land, you know, they're out. God could have taken his nation a number of paths, okay? He could have taken them a number of ways to take them to the land he'd promised them, but God takes them straight into what? What's in front of them? The Red Sea. Do you, you get this? It's like God said, let me take you out, and then you're going to dead in into the sea. And so what's in front of them, get this picture, what's in front of them is death by drowning. What's behind them is death by the, by the sword of Pharaoh and his army. This is the picture. Death and death closing in on them. Of course, God in his mercy divides the water. Think of it, he opens up death. They walk through it. And when his people are through it, Pharaoh's army goes in and the walls of water crash down and God's enemies are destroyed. Get that picture? Creation, flood, exodus. It's really, you know, think of that. If that, that's their DNA, that's in their blood, so to speak. No wonder the sea is a forbidding death zone for them. R.C. Sproul writes this, In Jewish literature, the sea was often used as a symbol for that which was ominous, sinister, and threatening, i.e. in the Bible, in the, when, we see, when we read our Bibles. Likewise, in ancient Semitic mythology, there is frequent reference to the primordial sea monster that represents the shadowy chaos, end quote. What did Jesus call what we call the whale? What did Jesus call it in Matthew? What did he call it? Uh, where does the beast rise out of in Revelation? The beast, where does it come from? The sea. No wonder the psalmist, this is where you start reading your Bible differently, the psalmist, when he was afraid, terrified, because he was going to be succumbed to death or his enemies were going to capture him, what does he refer to many, many times? Psalm 93.3, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted their voice. The floods lifting up their pounding waves. Psalm 18.16, he sent from on high and he took me and he drew me out of Many waters. Psalm 144, 7. Stretch forth your hand on high. Rescue me and deliver me out of the great waters. Now let me summarize this little excursus in terms of bibliology. The Bible says, and even ancient literature. The sea is danger, death, and destruction. Is everybody with me on that? See, for the, for, the, for the Jew, they're a land-loving people, man. They're in the desert. The, the, the sea is, uh, is danger, it is destruction, and it is death. That's the first point. Here's the second point. God is greater than the sea. You got to see those two. The sea is danger, destruction, and death. But God is greater than the sea. Go back through what we just went through. The creation account. A formless, chaotic, abyss, abode of water. And God separates, creates, and makes life 
out of that watery orb. Who's greater, the water or God? Answer me. God, see, this is the picture we need to get in our minds. He's greater than the sea. How about in the flood account? You know, in the, in the flood account, this is the waters of God's judgment. And so the wicked, God's enemies, are destroyed by this water. And yet, God's own are rescued. You talk about a surgical strike, a surgical rescue. One boat floating on the water. God saves his own. God is over, is greater than the sea. How about in the Exodus? Well, we just talked about the story. I mean, the enemy's coming in and God makes a way through the sea. I mean, this, is this a problem? Is the sea a problem for God? No. And his own walk through, even as those waters destroy his enemy. And then go here. You can't think about this. You'll think about this differently, I hope. What was Jesus' relationship to the sea? It's already happened in the book of Matthew that his disciples are out on the sea. The storm hits. And what do they think is happening? They think they're what? On the sea, people. And what's Jesus doing while they're terrified? Um, hello, we're on the sea, Jesus. It's about to kill us, Jesus. And what does he do? He calms it with what? How does he calm the sea? With the word. Oh, my gosh. Later in Matthew, can you believe this? They're out on the sea again. They haven't learned the lesson. They're terrified. And Jesus comes to them. And when Jesus comes to them, when they're on the sea and they're terrified, what's Jesus doing with the sea? Are you kidding me? So Jesus walked on the water. Jesus walked on the sea. Who's greater? I mean, you think about the Bible, it talks about, you know, God tramples his enemies, people. The sea's under Jesus' feet. God is greater than the sea. Now, I'm going to put, put the pieces together. Okay, Lloyd, it's, let's get to Easter or something, you know. <laughs> The religious leaders ask Jesus for an attesting miracle to prove he's the son of God. And Jesus says, uh, you already have a sign. You're just not paying attention. See, they, they knew about Jonah. Trust me, they knew about Jonah. He says, you have a sign. Jonah was cast into the sea, i.e. cast into death. Death, right? God kept Jonah from death by putting him in the belly of the sea monster. And after three days, right, he puts Jonah back out. Now, track with me. Jesus on the cross goes into the sea. What do you mean he goes into the sea? Think about the picture, the images God's giving us. Jesus on the cross goes into the sea, for Jesus goes into the deep abyss and darkness of what? Death, 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 the sea. Just like Jonah, but with some really big differences, okay? Number one, Jonah was thrown overboard because he was running from God. Jesus will be nailed to the cross because he's trusting God. 
Jonah went reluctantly. Jesus will go purposefully. Jonah was tossed into the sea by others. Jonah didn't say, you guys back up, I'm going. No, they had to throw him in. Jesus will dive headfirst of his own accord into the sea, into death. And here's where it's very important we get this. Unlike Jonah, when Jesus dove into the sea, there was no sea monster there to swallow him and keep him alive so that three days later he could come back. Jesus dove into the sea of death, dead. You see, when Jesus came off the cross, we know historically he had breathed his last. He was dead, thrown into the sea. Nothing under the sea, nothing under the sea to save him, to keep him alive. You understand, Jonah was breathing fish, you know, fish air, in, you know, oxygen in the gut of the whale. Jesus was dead. Jesus was dead. And he's dead for three days. Again, Jonah, figuratively, do you understand that? Figuratively dead. Jesus, literally dead. God's law, this is where, you know, theologically we keep sewing this up. God's law says the wages of sin is death. This is, our Bible makes clear, that to, 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 to miss the mark of holiness, holiness is to choose, it's to choose death. We choose death, separation from God. We know that Jesus died. He, he died a literal death. But it would be unjust, understand this, it would be unholy, it would be unjust righteous, God could not be God as we know him, if he allowed a sinless man to remain in death. That would be unholy. It would be unjust. So why did Jesus die? And I I know you know the answer, but I want to reinforce this answer. 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps us. Paul writes, he made him who knew no sin, God the Father made Jesus the Son, who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul does not say Jesus sinned. Doesn't say that. It says he became sin. It doesn't even say, you know, well, Jesus became a sinner. Absolutely not. That's not what he says. He says, God made Jesus who was sinless, To be sin. To be sin. Jesus became sin on the cross. Well, and again, we know this. I'll remind you. He became my sin. Every act of sin and rebellion and lust and mind and thought and heart and action and words and things like that. Every, all of my sin, all of your sin. He he became sin, you see. He became the sin of all who would one day put their trust in him. And being sin, it required death. And I understand. See, think of, put, your, put yourself in the, in the feet of the disciples and those who were following Jesus. They know he's dead. Y'all, they know that he's dead. They watch this. That's why we have the eyewitness accounts. And he goes in the tomb. He's dead. 
In other words, Jesus is at the bottom of the sea. He's dead at the bottom of the sea. And he's dead for three days. So no wonder when the women first come, they're bringing all the oils and ointments. Why? We know this because they expect to find a stinking dead body. The only hope that Jesus would rise out of that watery grave is if he truly had no sin of his own to pay for. Because if he was truly sinless, death could not hold him. So when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, please understand, when we say the gospel is Jesus lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserved, he was buried and raised. Understand, when it says he was raised, that's God's vindication that Jesus has no sin. Therefore, he was a satisfactory payment for our sin. And once paid and satisfied, then Jesus rises and he lives and he lives today. And those of us who put our trust in what he did and that he did it for us, our sins are forgiven and we're clothed in his righteousness. Matthew will write further on, when the women go to the grave, the angel is there and he says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, Mark writes the same words, He is risen. Luke will write, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has been raised. And if Jesus has been raised, then Jesus is who he says he is, the only son of God. So the attesting sign, they said, give us a sign. He points them back and says, you understand, you got the sign because Jonah is pointing to what I'm about to do in a few days. Die and rise again. When Jesus says in 41 and 42, you know, the men of Nineveh will judge you all because something greater than Jonah is here. The, the queen of Sheba will, will condemn you all because something greater. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And here's the lesser. Jonah's the lesser, you all. The lesser. He's, he's foreshadowing and showing that there's going to be a resurrection. But Jonah didn't literally die He's pointing toward Jesus who would die and spend three days in the belly, in the heart of the earth. So the question always, of course, have you put your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? If, if you haven't, you can. This is the good news. Maybe it, it, and it can be today. You can trust that Jesus died for you, was buried and rose again. That's what it means to be forgiven. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's not to come to church. It's not to come on Easter. It's not to go at Christmas. It's not to, it's not to live a clean life because you can't. It's not to do good works and do more good works than bad works because you can't do enough. It's to trust that Jesus did everything for you and will you believe it? And I pray that you would I'm going to ask the band to come out. The worship team's going to come up, and we're going to end our time with an appropriate song. Um, if, if you're here today and you go, well, if Jesus would just show me 
something that proves that he is who he said he is, I'd believe. Well, let me say to you, um, he already has. Uh, just as he said to these religious, look, look, do you know the story of Jonah? You knew the story of Jonah. Well, you now know the significance of the story of Jonah. That Jonah was pointing to Jesus and that Jesus was raised from the grave after three days. Now, I'm going to suggest, this is not explicit but implicit, that God in his wisdom and providence has chosen to actually keep giving you and I, in a sense, again, this is implicit, the sign of Jonah. That, that when we read redemptive history, God has chosen to keep going, look, I'm going to show, you want to know if, if Jesus is real? Let me, show you, let me show you something that proves he's real. Now, where am I going with this? The, the church has two ordinances, two commandments that Jesus gave the church. Uh, the, you know, there's the Lord's table, which is when we break bread and we take that bread and we say, Jesus is symbolic of Jesus' body broken for me. And this cup is symbolic of his blood that was shed. His blood is life. See, his life was poured out. He died for me. Now, we take the Lord's table regularly because when we do it, we're, we're reminding each other, hey, uh, Jesus came and did what he said he was going to do, and we're proclaiming that he's going to come again and set all things right. It's something we do over and over and over again. Jesus gave us a second ordinance. It's called baptism. Uh, baptism is when a person who has trusted Christ one of their first steps of obedience, having become a Christian because they placed their faith in Christ, is to say, I want to step into the waters of baptism and, 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 and tell the world, God has saved me. Now, now think about this. He could have given us a number of things to do, signs, whatever. But he chose water. So, so when you see a baptism, what are we seeing? You understand, when you see someone baptized, of course we're seeing someone who says, I've been born again. Jesus is alive and well. He saved me. We're also seeing someone step into what? And what's that water? You get that? That we watch him go under, and you understand if you stayed under, even if it's just a three-foot deep pool, if you stay under, you're dead. But in baptism... We identify not just with his death. I have been buried with Christ in baptism. I am identifying with his death. But what happens in baptism? Where do we go? Man, we come out of the water. Thank God. And it's symbolic of saying, I, death can't hold me because I'm in Jesus. And he's sinless. And his sinlessness is mine, his righteousness. And boom, I come flying out of the water. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, God, yeah, for a picture. From life to death. Oh, my. In the mystery of God, oh, and his goodness, he takes the image of death, water. Do you see this? And he flips it. And it becomes the image of life. So much in that. So much to be grateful for. John will write in the Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. 
there is no longer any sea. Now, before you panic, those of you who spent the week at the beach and love the sea, I, 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 I can't be totally dogmatic, but can I say, based on what we understand of the sea and what it represents, I believe that there will be a sea in heaven. I mean, I mean the earth, how much water is on the earth, you know? I think there will be, a, I believe there will be a sea in heaven. What we need to keep in mind when he says there's no longer any sea is there will be nothing that the sea represents. Now, how do, I know, how do we get that? Well, two verses later, notice what he says. Let me tell you what's not going to be in heaven. And he will wipe away every tear. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Do you see the connection? There will no longer be any sea. I, I think there will be a sea, <clears throat> but I think this. Those of us who like to stay by the shore will be happy to swim in the deep is there will be nothing in that sea that's not amazing and fantastic and that we don't want to lay our eyes on in a new heaven and a new earth. Oh God, thank you for your word, your promises, and your faithfulness to your promises. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. Thank you for Jonah, 700 years earlier, rising out of the sea, foreshadowing the coming one who is greater. We give thanks. Amen. If you want someone to pray with you, I want to invite you to come up front. We'll have someone that's there that can pray with you. And I'll end with this. Let's remind ourselves of our history. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless.